Welcome to the inaugural season of One Life. This first series features a close friend and collaborator of many years, the great singer, actor, and raconteur, Mr. Jim Burns. I'm not going to give you any background on Jim as you're about to hear it from the horse's mouth, but I will tell you that I met him in about 1999 when a band I was in was on his weekly TV show, The Jim Burns Show. About four years later, we did a gig together, and that gig led to a deep collaboration that yielded an endless amount of performances at gigs and festivals, as well as seven records that I produced for him. And I would highly encourage you to check them out wherever you get your music. He truly is a remarkable singer and performer. From our first project together in 2004, Fresh Horses, to our most recent Long Hot Summer Days, Jim and I have clicked in the studio and found ways to inspire each other through the process. Jim has always blown me away with his soulful singing, and I've come to know him as a masterful storyteller as well. And while he's rooted in the blues and soul music, Jim has an adventurous spirit, and luckily for all of us was game to do this project with me. We spent two days at the Warehouse Studio in Vancouver, BC, set up the band in one room, and we improvised for pretty much two solid days while Jim told stories in whatever order they came to him. There was no script, no plan, and we completely improvised the music. The band was instructed to keep things somewhat inspired by grooves that drew from blues, country, soul, and old R&B or gospel, but to not be shackled by any traditional song forms or sounds. I had some hand signals developed to throw the musical ball around a bit, which would help determine a key center, and sometimes I would jot some chord changes down off the top of my head and show everyone the piece of paper. And sometimes I would just start something. Other than that, we're winging it for hours on end, and what you're hearing is what went down over those two days. Jim brought his A-game and told so many great stories, as well as giving us some context and history to his growing up in St. Louis, his tours of duty in Vietnam, the loss of his legs in a horrific car accident, and his stellar career as a TV actor on shows such as Wise Guy and Highlander, as well as his history as a recording artist and phenomenal soul and blues singer. The idea was for this to be less of an autobiography and more of a fireside chat an eight-hour fireside chat. Partly biographical, but also historical, philosophical, and some flat-out great storytelling. Sometimes Jim starts the chapter, sometimes one of the players. We just jumped in as we felt it. There's moments of transition where we settle into something new and Jim takes his time to gather his thoughts. It's all in there. The band consisted of myself on electric and acoustic guitars and steel guitar. Jeremy Holmes plays the bass and the mandolin. Chris Jestrin plays all the keyboards, and Gary Craig plays the drums and percussion. Sheldon Zaharko recorded everything in the control room, and our good friend Doug Hasselgrave was there too to occasionally point Jim in a direction that he found interesting. But for the most part, there was very little editorial input on purpose. So what you hear is what went down over those two days at the warehouse studio in Vancouver. So sit back, grab a drink, and allow yourself to be drawn in to one life. Thank you. 
begin at the beginning. The night I was born, the moon turned a fire red. <laughs> Not exactly, but uh, apparently it was quite a, uh, an eventful evening. We take it back to the equinox in September of 1948 at the Missouri Baptist Hospital on North Taylor Avenue. My mother had a... I gave her a hard time from the very beginning, apparently. And um, that, that night, there was a, I was born during a, a torrential uh, thunderstorm. Thunder, lightning, torrential rain. In fact, uh, the hospital was struck by lightning and one of the wings has started a huge fire. The woman that was in the room with my mother died that evening. And uh, so it was quite a, an eventful beginning, I suppose. <laughs> now, um, you know, this is all sort of pre-memory, what I've been told. I guess I was a bit of a handful, to the point where my mother nicknamed me Stormy quite early on. On the other hand, her mother, my maternal grandmother, who I want to speak just a little bit about because I think some of the my love of music comes from this woman who had had a really a a bit of a tragic life. And now she, on the other hand, called me Sonny Jim. <laughs> and that was uh, her favorite ball player with the St. Louis Cardinals, was the first baseman from Albany, Illinois, Sonny Jim Bottomley, the hero of the 1926 World Series. But uh, my, mother, my mother's mother, Mary Newman, was known to her others in her family as Sorrowful Mary because of her her journey, but she kept herself uh, smiling and happy by singing, Mom tells me. She was uh, born, uh, this was, well, way back in the 19th century, but um, when she was three years old, her mother died, and uh, she had an older brother. A year later, or six months later, uh, she was abandoned by her father and uh, was brought up by her uh, her grandparents, a Timothy O'Brien, who was a railroad brakeman. Uh, her older brother was sent to an orphanage because they could only handle one kid. And uh, Mary went on to uh, to marry uh, the uh, son of a, an Alsatian immigrant, my uh, grandfather, Philippe Ferdinand Zeller. How's that for a name? And uh, this is a guy that made his living uh, delivering coal off the back of a horse-drawn wagon. Uh, they had 10 children. Two of whom uh, died uh, three months and six months old from what they used to call being blue babies. All right, but my mom was the uh, the second youngest of, uh, of these ten, and then her father died when she was about five years old. So here was this woman with these uh, eight kids and uh, a crippled leg, and uh, all she had was her love of music, her great joys in life, uh, I am told, were on Saturday afternoon listening to the Metropolitan Opera on the radio. And her other great joy was listening to the baseball broadcast of the St. Louis Cardinals. She never got to go to a game live, but she loved those Cardinals. <laughs> I suppose I get some of that from her as well. Mom told me, you know, that she would sing. She would sing all the time. And that's how she kept her sanity, supposedly. And my mom was a good singer as well. She had a, a sort of a deep contralto, uh, interesting voice, but uh, often I would hear her 
singing, probably heard her singing when I was still in the womb. I have a, only a vague, very vague memory of my uh, maternal grandmother as she died when I was three years old, which is about where my, my memories begin myself. I mean, my very first memories in my life, I have two that are very vivid. They happened in a house on Penrose Avenue in North St. Louis. And we had moved out of that house in uh, 1951, so I would have been three years old when I had these memories in that house. I don't know which one comes first, but they're both uh, from around the same time. The first one would have been, uh, I was running around in a circle. My dad was walking in the door from work. We had the radio on, and it was the Wabash Cannonball, Roy Acuff. And I was running around trying to sing along with it. I can see my mom and dad standing there. The next memory was uh, in the same house. We had been to visit my paternal grandmother who lived around the corner. It was a Sunday, we'd been there for Sunday dinner. And um, we came home and the house had been broken into and uh, we'd been robbed. There was glass, broken glass all over the floor. And my sister Mary Frances, my older sister, had a collection of paper dolls, which uh, I guess you don't see much anymore, but back in the day they were quite the thing and she had quite the collection and they were strewn all about the house, I remember. My mom and my sister Mary were, well, my mom was trying to console Mary Frances as she was crying over her lost stuff. And my dad was standing in the corner talking to the police. <laughs> I remember it just oh so well. Now, we, like I say, we moved out of the house when I was three years old and uh, into the house where I, I lived until I went away, I moved away to, to, to go to university. It had a, Oh, it was a house built uh, just uh, right after World War One. Had a backyard of maybe, uh, I don't know, might have been 20 feet by 20 feet. But to me, it was like the outfield at the Bush Stadium, man. It was uh, this huge place to play ball in and to dream. And that's, uh, that's where it all kind of began. My next really, uh, when I was, I had started school, kindergarten, uh, Our Lady of Mount Carmel School, same place where my sister Mary, who was five years older than me, had gone. And uh, about uh, part of the way into the year, I got, a, I got sick. It started out with a, some sort of a cold. The doctor came to visit, and uh, he just said, oh, it'll be fine, he'll be fine, don't, don't worry about it. Things got worse and worse. And I have this memory of lying on the couch in the front room and another doctor coming in and my parents being very distraught and they immediately bundled me up and took me to the hospital and uh, packed me in ice. My, my temperature had gone up to about 107, which uh, <laughs> could kill you, but uh, apparently it didn't kill me this time. But I spent the next, I guess, about uh, four months in the hospital. 
lung infections. And uh, it got so severe that uh, it affected my, my kidneys. I had uh, acute nephritis, and uh, it was uh, quite a time in my life. But uh, I have vague memories of it. I remember being packed in ice and uh, not being able to be eat any food. I was fed intravenously. And, uh, but late at night in the hospital, you know, what the, most of the people had gone, and, and at, at most of the time, the, uh, the help, the, the people that stayed overnight uh, were African-American people. And down the hallway, you could hear them play on, on the radio. And uh, I guess that was my first introduction to the music that uh, I really came to love so much. And also, I think, I guess, during that time is where I kind of learned to live within my imagination. My first, uh, you know, where when I became an actor, <laughs> okay? Just uh, living in your imagination and imagining what other people think and what other people do and trying to find a way to express that. So the love of music and the, and the love of that uh, living in your imagination kind of kind of come out of the same place. I was uh, eventually uh, had uh, an operation on my uh, my lungs, and they drained my lung. I still have a big hole in my back from uh, where they I had gotten out of the hospital, but for another six months, I, uh, I would have to go back uh, to see the to see the doctor. And uh, this big drain on my lung, these tubes that were hung out of my lungs. Anyway, I, I learned to breathe again and uh, got back to school. bit about my dad's family, an interesting bunch. Uh, immigrants from uh, Ireland. Uh, my dad was uh, born in the States, the youngest of seven. Once again, his, his, uh, his father uh, died young, uh, died when my dad was 12. He'd been quite sick. This was, you know, before antibiotics. <laughs> he had some sort of an infection, and he died in the home in, the, in a dark room where they went every night and sat and prayed the rosary around him. I suppose listened to John McCormick records. What a family! These guys, the, out of the seven of them, only my dad and my uncle Ray ever 
got married, and the rest of them all lived together in the same house, for, which in North America seemed kind of strange to a lot of people, but a lot of places in the world, it's not strange at all. They were old world people, you know. They, they hung on to those old traditional ways. There was a lot of love, but it was expressed in a very, uh, well, a lot of stuff was put under the rug, you know. If something went wrong, we just wouldn't talk about it. My Uncle Joe, the eldest brother, who was uh, my godfather, and uh, he had signed on to start work on the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, the Katy Railroad. People always wonder what she caught to Katy and left me a mule to rise about. Well, my Uncle Joe worked for the Katy Railroad for 58 years, from he was 14 until he was 72. This is a guy that never missed, uh, never missed one day of work, Went to mass every day of his life. <laughs> and uh, like they say, you know, have a good look because you'll never see the like of this guy again. When the father died, when grandfather died, dad was 12 and Joe, I guess, was about 22 and had been working for the railroad for eight years or so and had a pass. And he took my dad on the train. And the two of them went to uh, to Yellowstone National Park. They were riding in the train. I often, someday I may still do it. I, I would love to write a play about these two Irish boys who, neither of them very uh, vocal about their feelings and stuff, but uh, on this train on the way to see Old Faithful Geyser in Yellowstone National Park in 1924. Anyway, someday I may, I may write that one-act play. But that's in the future, I guess. <laughs> anyway, the uh, the family was, uh, they all, like I say, stayed home. Uh, my, my Aunt Hazel, who was my godmother, um, idolized me. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great film, uh, it's, it was uh, John Huston's uh, final uh, film that he directed, The Dead, based on the James Joyce story. And uh, so many people in that, uh, in that film remind me so much of my father's family. Particularly uh, the woman who plays uh, the actress, very jovial and uh, just so wonderful to be around. It's my aunt Hazel, you know, really something. And what a family! <laughs> my dad, being the youngest of them, was the only one that actually got through school. Now he graduated from high school in 1930. He was uh, top marks of his class, the valedictorian, the class president. But uh, it being 1930 in the United States, the depths of the Depression, uh, he was had, they had no funds to go to university. He spent the next 14 years oh, working jobs like uh, oil rigs in Oklahoma and uh, a repo man for an insurance company and uh, usher at the prize fights, and going to night school, taking night school classes. And finally in the late 40s, took his, all his, his night school classes and was accepted to spend a year at the college of, uh, at St. Louis University, uh, College of Commerce and Finance. And he got uh, his degree in 1944. And I still wear his class ring. He's, he's with me all the time. But uh, dad would be, uh, oh, we'd be at a, a family events and stuff and I'd be mouthing off about this, that, and the other thing. And, 
he would get this look on his face and say, you and your goddamn education. <laughs> the levels of irony are <laughs> too hard to, to limb, I'll tell you. Those were wonderful times. I can't tell you how much I miss uh, mom and dad. Uh, just recently on Mother's Day, I, was, I did a post on Facebook. My mother was an angel while here on earth, and I know she's an angel in heaven. Those two people, uh, boy, what they put up with for me is uh, kind of unbelievable. There was always love in the house and always a light in the window. Now getting back to uh, coming out of this uh, hospital and uh, when I was just, uh, I finished kindergarten, uh, when I got back to school, I was kind of this uh, rare bird. They looked at me uh, with uh, some kind of wonder, all the kids in the class that had been away and they had prayed the last rites of the church over me and said prayers for me every day in school. And here I came back, here I was, back from the dead it seemed. Then the other problem started was uh, my eyes, okay? I had uh, what they call amblyopia, a wandering eye. And I spent the next five years going twice a week to an ophthalmologist uh, to these exercises with my eyes to try to strengthen my one weak eye. And I also wore a patch over my eye as a kid for almost five years. Now, uh, this wasn't a cool patch like a pirate. No, it was like one of those, uh, a Band-Aid over my eye. And you know how kind little kids can be, so kind of put up with a lot of grief over, over my eyesight when I was a kid. Probably when I was uh, nine or 10, I, uh, I had my eyes operated on. And uh, that was a, a pretty uh, wild, crazy memory from that time was, uh, they would come in at night and I had these bandages on my eyes and they would change the bandages. And uh, to keep me from uh, uh, tearing the bandages off in my sleep or whatever, they would uh, tie me to the bed. And this would be a nurse and a nun tying me to the bed when I was nine years old. Uh, a pretty very vivid memory, and I suppose it's uh, <laughs> left some scars on my psyche. I don't know. I just don't know. Always had all these health problems, but uh, but school was a gas. I was uh, I was good at it. Uh, and uh, one of the things we started when I started first grade was uh, taking piano lessons from the nuns as did my sister before me and my sister after me. And uh, it was great. I mean, I, I, at that age, I, I learned how to read music. And uh, it's something that has uh, been a part of my life and it really put me in good stead uh, in so many situations that I could, uh, although I was never, never a great sight reader or whatever, I could sit down with a piece of music when I had to and, and, uh, and figure it out, find out where it was going. And, uh, Later in life, it was good when I got into uh, oh, singing jingles and uh, singing professionally. I mean, I could go in and, and read a chart. That uh, got me it got me a fair amount of work. So I, I go back to those days. And oddly enough, I, the first two uh, pieces I, I played at recital was uh, one was the Robert Burns piece, uh, "Flow Gently, Sweet Afton," uh, among my green braids, <laughs> and the other was. Uh, based on uh, Pine Top's Boogie Woogie. 
And that left hand hitting that stuff, I and mean, that boogie woogie piano, just, uh, I guess I would have been seven years old. I gave a recital where I played Burns and I played boogie woogie. <laughs> and I guess all that stuff has kind of stuck with me into this very day. And growing up in St. Louis now, uh, on the radio when I was quite young, when I discovered that at one end of the radio, it was uh, Patty Page and uh, Vaughn Monroe and <laughs> all this. You know, I, I love all types of music. I'm not trying to knock it. But down at the other end of the dial, there was, uh, well, there were two stations, KXLW and KATZ. And uh, the, uh, the disc jockeys, uh, Spider Burks, uh, Jerome Dixon, Robert B.Q., <laughs> uh, the Dixon brothers, Jerome and, and Dave Dixon. And, uh, and these guys played uh, some music that, wow, this is something else. In the mornings, uh, Brother Columbus Gregory would bring you the gospel train. And uh, on Sunday afternoons, uh, all day Sunday, they would, they would have live broadcasts from, uh, from churches around, the, uh, around St. Louis and East St. Louis, uh, the Haynes Miracle Temple. And, uh, the, the Living Ch Stone Church of God in Christ. And man, oh man, I, you know, listening to the radio was just, holy crow, this stuff was just really something. Now, when I was 10, I w I, if you can believe it with my voice now, but I was, in fact, a boy soprano and uh, sang in the choir and was often given, uh, well, lead, you know, solos to do. And we had a, uh, there was a Christmas concert. It was an interfaith Christmas concert that we all went to. And uh, there was a, uh, an Episcopalian Anglican choir, a Lutheran choir. Uh, we, we sang uh, stuff from the Magnificat and uh, we sang uh, some beautiful eighth century plain song, Gregorian chant, and I was given a, uh, a solo piece in that. But the other, uh, the other choir was uh, from the Greater Bethlehem Baptist Church where the Reverend Cleophas Robinson was the, uh, the pastor and ran the choir. And I remember very well coming out of that and my folks asking me, man, what'd you think of them? And I said, oh, the, all the music was beautiful. But as I said to them, you know, their God is still alive. <laughs> well, as Marcus Mosley, my buddy says, you know, like uh, uh, church is a full contact sport. <laughs> Just the other night, I went and saw the uh, the film, the, the Aretha Franklin film, Amazing Grace, and boy, did that take me back some wonderful days. In fact, I, you know, seeing the Reverend C. L. Franklin, he was one of the guys that would often be played on uh, that Brother Columbus Gregory would play on the gospel train. That's uh, you know, this music kind of kept me through, and it started to. Uh, like I say, all sorts of music. Uh, I also fell in love with uh, with the bluegrass music. My my dad had a had a friend that he worked with at the city hall, uh, a fellow named Roland Gaines. Roland was from Berea, Kentucky, but Roland had come uh, after he got out of the Marine Corps, World War II. Uh, he had moved to St. Louis uh, to sing on the radio. And he hoped to have a career in music. Well, that didn't quite work out for him, but he, uh, 
He got a job at City Hall, worked with my dad, and became a great friend of my dad's. And we would go to visit him. And he had the first guitar that I ever played. And I don't think I've ever played a better guitar in my life. He had a, a Martin D28 that he bought with his, uh, his money from his GI Bill after the war. And oh my God, what a beautiful guitar. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Roland, you know, was a country boy, and he would sing that, you know, country music. And uh, he introduced me to uh, a lot of stuff, bluegrass music, and uh, and so some of the old, you know, country stuff back from those days. And, and I fell in love with that too. People would go on about the, the way they uh, pigeonhole music, and, and I hate that. You know, when Muddy Waters first. Uh, was recorded by uh, John Lomax, and he had heard about this guy, this Muddy Waters guy that uh, worked on the Stovall Plantation, who was a, a young tractor driver who apparently was a pretty good guitar player and singer. And so he had uh, arranged to meet him. Now, Muddy had heard that uh, there was a guy from Washington, D.C., from the government looking for him, and Muddy ran a still uh, <laughs> and was worried about this, meeting a guy from the government. So they met at the company store, and uh, Lomax asked him to, uh, to give him a, a list of his songs. And there's a, about 32 songs, a bunch of which are from uh, Jean Autry, for example. And uh, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. Now, a lot of people have not heard uh, Muddy do this stuff. But, but growing up down there in the South, you know, like uh, good music was good music. Uh, Johnny Shines told me about, you know, who traveled with, with Robert Johnson. Uh, they would go into a town and, uh, and, and sit out, you know, in the, the town square, and uh, to, to attract a crowd, they would uh, they would sing. And uh, you know, Johnny Shines told me, you know, that Robert Johnson could do that uh, Jimmy Rogers uh, yodeling stuff as well as anybody he'd ever heard in his life. Uh, of course, we all know him from uh, the great. Uh, blues stuff that he put down but but uh, back then they you know they didn't call themselves blues singers they were music songsters musicianers and uh that's a, that's a thing that i've always tried to maintain in my own uh, career or my own love of music is just uh, keeping your ears open to everything every little bit of music has uh, got something very special and something very beautiful when it comes from the heart whether it's uh, black white red yellow when it comes from the heart, when it comes from the soul, it's a beautiful thing, if you ask me. <laughs> and uh, I've always tried to maintain that in my own, the music that I present and the way that I try and present it. episodes up now for your enjoyment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.